Today, if you look at the syllabus, today we were supposed to be having the first exam. That's obviously not going to happen. Um, what I have to decide, what I have to figure out though, is since the university opened last Tuesday, they're not going to make, they're not going to extend the semester at all. So we don't have to worry. Like the semester will still end the day they said it was going to end, which effectively means that I'll have to cut out a lecture somewhere. And I'm not exactly sure where that is just yet, but I'll. Um, I'll need to look at the syllabus some more to figure that out. Uh, what I can tell you for the immediate future is today we're going to do the lecture on exercise metabolism. Next Tuesday we're going to do the lecture on exercise endocrinology. I'll be going in in the next uh, day or two and extending all the quizzes for those two um, lectures if I haven't already. And uh, pretty much I'll just set them to unlimited so you can just take them whenever you want. I've also decreased the time interval between the attempts, so I think it's like 10 minutes now as, as opposed to two hours. And uh, so just make sure you go in and get those taken care of when you get a chance. And then we'll do the lecture for today, we'll do the lecture for next week, and if all goes well, then uh, we'll have the first exam on October 7th. Uh, so you can go ahead and tentatively put that on your calendars right now, and uh, I'll get an updated syllabus done this week and get that on WebCT for you as well. So, um, as uh, hopefully in the next couple lectures, now that uh, the clicker thing seems to be working correctly, I should say say that lightly because it worked all morning so that means it won't work now but um, it uh, it seems to be working correctly so hopefully in today's lecture and next week's lecture you'll get a little bit of um, a feel for the kind of questions that um, you might see on the exam and then when it gets a little bit closer to the exam um, we'll do a day I don't know exactly yet I have to look at the syllabus for that too or look at the calendar for that but I'll try and work in a day where I can be available to answer any questions you may have, and we may just handle that via WebCT. I haven't quite decided yet, but uh, in the event, in any event, uh, if you're looking at your material now and you're preparing now, if you have questions now, you can always use the discussion forum, and I can answer you there. Uh, please don't send me an email. Um, that's just going to be painful at this point uh, because I got to come back to. Um, Oh, I, about, I had about 900 emails in my inbox when I came back on Sunday. Uh, so um, I've gone, I spent the entire day responding to email yesterday, so, and I didn't even finish them all. So I'd rather not keep doing that. So please use the discussion forum. I'm happy to help you. Don't email me, please, unless you want a response in the spring. Okay. Uh, all right, so with that said, we're going to start off with some questions that uh, are pertinent to the bioenergetics lecture that we had several weeks ago. And uh, one, one point to make as we go through these questions, and I'm not sure if I made this really clear before, is the amount of points you get in, based on the syllabus is not determined on whether you get these questions right or wrong. Uh, if you answer the questions, you're going to get all the points, whether you get the question right or wrong. It's not about getting it right or wrong. It's about you seeing what, how far you are in your understanding of the material. All right, so with that said, first question is, glucose is metabolized to make ATP during aerobic means in A, the mitochondria via glycolysis, B, the mitochondria via oxidative phosphorylation, C, the mitochondria via beta-oxidation, or D, in the cytoplasm. 
Okay, and the correct answer is in the mitochondria via oxidative phosphorylation. Um, well, first off, A cannot possibly be the answer because glycolysis doesn't occur in the mitochondria. It occurs in the cytoplasm, so that's impossible that that's the answer. Uh, it cannot, it's definitely not C because beta oxidation does occur in the mitochondria, but beta oxidation is for fats or fatty acids. And um, it's not D because the thing that occurs in the cytoplasm is glycolysis, and glycolysis can be anaerobic or aerobic, either or, but not specifically aerobic. So the correct answer was oxidative phosphorylation in the mitochondria. All right, so which of the following represents the correct order of events pertaining to full metabolism of glucose? A, glycolysis, TCA cycle, products shuttled into the mitochondria and the electron transport chain. B, glycolysis, electron transport chain, products shuttled into the mitochondria and the TCA cycle. C, glycolysis, products shuttled into the mitochondria, TCA cycle, and electron transport chain. D, products shuttled into the mitochondria, glycolysis, TCA cycle, and electron transport chain, or E, none of these are correct. All right, so C was the correct sequence. Uh, so when you fully metabolize glucose, you first process it in, the, in glycolysis, resulting in the formation of NADH and pyruvic acid. You then shuttle the NADH and the pyruvic acid into the mitochondria, you run the TCA cycle on the pyruvic acid, and then you run the electron transport chain. So that's the correct sequence of events. All right, uh, during 60 minutes of aerobic exercise, a 10 degree increase in skeletal muscle temperature would A, double the rate of oxidative phosphorylation, B, make a subject shift to anaerobic glycolysis to make ATP to meet the exercise demand, C, result in the Q10 effect, or D, some of the above are correct. Okay, uh, first off, um, B, I just completely made up because the question doesn't really mention anything about exercise intensity. And intensity is what drives the body to use anaerobic energy systems, not changes in body temperature. So then you were left with A and C, and the effect that the question is asking about is effectively the Q10 effect. That means that C is correct. But A is a, basically a definition of what would be happening to the Q, with the Q10 effect, specifically to that body system during exercise. And thus, A and C were correct, and the answer was some of the above. Okay, uh, with that said, uh, we'll go ahead and get into today's lecture material, and then we'll pick up some more questions at the end of class. So to start with the usual overview of what we're going to talk about today, uh, we're going to talk first about anaerobic exercise and its relationship to the lactate threshold. Uh, we'll talk specifically about the bicarbonate buffering system and what are some of the potential causes of the lactate threshold are. We'll then talk about substrate utilization. And uh, we'll, as we talk about that, I'll mention the respiratory exchange ratio. And then when we get to the respiratory physiology section, we'll talk about that quite a bit more. Uh, keep in mind that when we talk about substrate utilization during exercise, really we're talking about two things. We're talking about carbohydrates and we're talking about fats. Uh, the third macronutrient substrate your body has is proteins, but proteins aren't an ideal source of energy during exercise. They're more useful as building blocks for the, the muscles. So when we get to muscle physiology, we'll talk about contractile proteins 
and that's where that, that comes into play. So not specifically with uh, ATP production. And then as we wrap up today, we'll talk uh, a little bit about how the body transitions itself from rest to exercise and then back to rest. And specifically, we'll talk about how training status influences these responses. We'll talk about the body's typical response to long-duration exercise, and we'll talk about the effects of glycogen depletion. So first off, lactic acid, we, we've talked about this before, but just to kind of go over it one more time, uh, lactic acid is the byproduct of anaerobic glycolysis. And the acid portion of the lactic acid molecule is removed by active tissues, uh, so hence skeletal muscle. Anytime we're talking about exercise and we say active tissues, what we mean is skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle removes the acid part of lactic acid, and then the acid por portion is buffered in the blood via something known as the bicarbonate system. The lactate molecule itself can then be circulated back to the liver, and when it reaches the liver, the liver has the ability to convert that lactate molecule into glucose, and it does that via a process known as gluconeogenesis. So if you break down the word gluconeogenesis, that pretty much tells you what it's doing because uh, genesis refers to creation, neo refers to new, and then glucose. So it's a process which is creating new glucose. So that's just kind of a repeat of what we've talked about previously with lactic acid. The, um, the interesting thing is as you increase exercise intensity, you get, do get changes in lactic acid levels. And lactic acid is a prediction, or if you measure it in the blood, it's a prediction of what the anaerobic contribution to exercise is. On this particular graph, we have blood lactate on the y-axis and exercise intensity on the x-axis. And if we were to have someone exercise in the laboratory and we took a blood sample on them at the end of different stages of exercise, we might measure a blood lactate response that looks like this. Uh, in, the rea in reality, if we measured blood lactate responses, we wouldn't see anything quite this clean, but uh, for demonstration purposes, this will work. And when you look at these lines, there's essentially, it's a logarithmic line or a curvilinear line, which means it's not perfectly straight. And usually what we say that means is that there is what we call a slow phase to the line, where the slope isn't very steep, and there's a fast phase to the line where the slope's very steep. So if we connected all these line, these points together, you can see the flat line at the bottom, the left side of the graph, that's the slow phase of lactate increases. And the steep line to the right is the fast phase increases. And essentially what this means is, is when you first start exercising, there's not much lactic acid being released into the blood. Why is that? Well, it's because lactic acid concentration and anaerobic contribution is directly dictated by exercise intensity. And when you're exercising at a very low intensity, your body doesn't need anaerobic energy systems. It can make a sufficient amount of energy using ATP. So just to remind you from several weeks ago when we met, one of the things I said at least uh, probably six or seven times during the lectures was in order to maintain a certain exercise intensity, that intensity has a certain rate of ATP utilization associated with it. So that skeletal muscle to contract at that speed to maintain that exercise intensity uses ATP at a certain rate. And the reason that you're able to maintain that intensity 
is because your body can make ATP at the same rate that it's being used. Anytime the body can't do that, that's when you fatigue and you pretty much have to slow down. So what you can say about this graph is during the left part of this line, where there's not much lactic acid being produced, it tells you that the aerobic energy systems provide plenty ATP to maintain exercise intensity. However, as you progress to the right and you increase exercise intensity, you get a gradual increase in lactic acid presence to the point where there's substantial increases in lactate and in, in some individuals with maximal exercise, you can increase lactic acid in the blood up to 20 to 25 times resting values. So uh, for instance, uh, resting value of lactate is around one millimolar and it could increase up to 25 millimolar. You don't need to know those specific numbers, but just to, to put it in a frame of reference. The point at which this, you have this nonlinear increase in lactate is what has been termed the lactic, lactate threshold. And when the body reaches the lactate threshold, that means that the production of lactate has exceeded the body's ability to remove lactate or lactic acid. So how's the body removing lactic acid? Well, that's what was on the last slide. It's removing the acid part of lactic acid by buffering that in the blood, and it's removing the lactate molecule itself by sending it to the liver. And essentially, when the amount of lactic acid you're producing exceeds the capacity of those systems to remove it, you'll get an accumulation of lactic acid in the blood. And when that occurs, that pretty much signals to us that the aerobic energy systems are no longer sufficient for maintaining exercise intensity. So for instance, if you were to look at a intensity, so if we looked at an intensity of exercise out here near maximal exercise, there's two energy systems that are contributing to exercise. There is aerobic energy systems and there is the two anaerobic energy systems. As opposed to down here, below the lactate threshold, you have um, mostly the energies coming from aerobic energy systems. So what all does this mean? Why, why on earth would anyone want to actually know this? Um, other than you're being tested over it, if... Um, you had uh, someone come in, not necessarily somebody that just exercises recreationally, but if you had somebody come in and they wanted to seriously train for a competitive marathon, for instance, and they said, I want to train in such a way that I maximize my aerobic potential. Well, the way to accomplish that is to set the exercise intensity so that it is at or slightly below the lactate threshold. So usually what you do is you do a lactate threshold test in the lab, you measure uh, heart rate during that test, and then you can tell the person if your heart rate is about this level, then you're going to be pretty close to the lactate threshold. So that's pretty much how that would be useful as a training tool. All right, so that's kind of how the lactate threshold works, and we'll come back to that some more in just a moment. The uh, next piece of this is the bicarbonate system, and this is what I mentioned actually does the buffering of the acid part of lactic acid. And the way this works is you start with acid, obviously, from lactic acid. That's being released from the skeletal muscle. And it combines with bicarbonate in the blood. Yes, that's baking soda, for those of you who are wondering or trying to remember what exactly that is or if you care. Um, the, there's a lot of research that was done a lot, maybe 20, 30 years ago where people said, 
oh, well, if, if we just have more bicarbonate in the body, then uh, we can increase lactate buffering. So there's a lot of studies done where people uh, consume large doses of bicarbonate, and pretty much all that does is um, give you an easy stomach because it buffers the acid in your stomach and doesn't ever get absorbed in the bloodstream. The only way really to increase bicarbonate in the bloodstream is to directly infuse it with uh, intravenous uh, catheter. But when you combine the acid part of lactic acid with bicarbonate, that forms a molecule called carbonic acid, and it forms carbonic acid in a reversible reaction. Which means that if you have high concentrations of acid, this reaction will favor the formation of carbonic acid. However, if you have high concentrations of carbonic acid, it will favor the formation of acid. So obviously we don't want to take acid, buffer it to carbonic acid, and then have it go right back to acid. That kind of defeats the purpose. So we have a second reaction, and in the second reaction, carbonic acid gets broken down into water and carbon dioxide. And this is a really important reaction because it neutralizes the acid part of lactic acid. And more importantly, it converts it into two things which the body can get rid of. It converts it into water, which the body pretty much needs anyway. And it converts it into CO2. And once it's converted to CO2, you can just exhale it. Your body can't exhale hydrogen or uh, hydrogen ions, the acid part of acid. So the only way to get that out of the body is to convert it into something you can get rid of, and that something is carbon dioxide. If you're trying to maximize aerobic benefits, because once you exceed the lactate threshold, you're not you're, you are training the aerobic system, but not solely the aerobic system. You're actually training the anaerobic system. Um, so it's not really, it's not, that's not ideal. And usually it depends on the individual, but normally the lactate threshold is around 40 to 60% of um, your VO2 max, approximately. So what you'll see is if somebody's training for, uh, some, if they're trying to do aerobic type of training, they usually keep their percentage of the VO2 max below 60%. And if they're trying to do anaerobic training, they do these really short duration things, but really high intensity to guarantee that they get very little activation of aerobic energy systems. All right, so a little bit more about the lactate threshold. Um, there's a couple different ways to determine where the intersection of those two lines occurs. Obviously, the way I drew it on that picture, it was pretty obvious where it was, but um, if you've ever looked at this kind of data in the, from a laboratory study, it's anything but clear. Um, there's just points all over the place, and normally you just have to kind of, well, you do two, one of two ways. You do what's called the breakpoint method, or you do the four millimolar method. Uh, in our lab, we use the four millimolar method, which means that once the lactate gets to four millimolar, that's the lactate threshold, whatever intensity that's at. And uh, we, we found that to be pretty effective because the alternate method is uh, the breakpoint method, which essentially means the guessing method. Because you look at the graph and you say, oh, I think the lactate threshold's right there. And you can pretty much almost arbitrarily pick where the point is. So to take that uh, individual bias out of the equation, we usually use the four millimolar method. Um, the blood lactate threshold has also been creatively termed uh, the onset of blood lactate, uh, sometimes also abbreviated as OBLA. 
And as I said just a moment ago, the reason the lactate threshold occurs, it occurs because lactate production exceeds lactate removal. So lactate production is coming from anaerobic glycolysis. Lactate removal is gluconeogenesis in the liver and the bicarbonate system. And when you exceed those two systems, that's when the lactate threshold occurs. So some other possible causes for why it occurs at the point that it does is uh, some research has shown that, that low muscle oxygen influences the lactate threshold. So even at lower intensities of exercise, uh, essentially there isn't enough oxygen being supplied to the muscle and that can cause the body to shift to anaerobic means to make ATP. Because the bottom line is the body's got to supply ATP at a certain rate. Uh, it would prefer to do it with aerobic systems, but it will do it with anaerobic systems if it has to. So you may think, well, how would your muscle oxygen ever be low? Well, if we took any one of you and we made you exercise at altitude, or we made you exercise at simulated altitude, I can guarantee you we could get low muscle oxygen without much trouble. The, uh, the other way that it happens is in a small percentage of aerobic athletes that train at a high intensity, they develop a condition called exercise-induced hypoxemia, which basically means that when they exercise, the oxygen content of their blood drops. And it's an unintended drop. It's a negative side effect of training, but it, uh, it puts more stress on the metabolic systems during exercise. A second reason for the lactate threshold is an accelerated rate of glycolysis. And this is being driven specifically by exercise intensity. The higher the exercise intensity, the faster that glycolysis will attempt to make ATP. And the only reason that that matters is there's two things that you have to get rid of. Uh, well, there's, some, there's one key thing you have to get rid of if you're using glycolysis to prime the TCA cycle. You have to, A, you have to move pyruvic acid into the mitochondria, and B, you have to move NADH into the mitochondria. And essentially, the transporters that move those molecules, they have a certain rate associated with them. And glycolysis can actually make pyruvic acid, and it can make NADH faster than those transporters can move them into the mitochondria. And any time that happens, that step when you're moving into the mitochondria becomes the rate-limiting step. And the body has to find some way to deal with those molecules that are being created. And the only way it really knows to do that is to make it into lactic acid. A third reason for the recruitment or the uh, lactate threshold is the recruitment of fast-twitch muscle fibers. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about types of muscle cells or muscle fibers right now. We'll talk about that when we get to skeletal physiology a little bit more. But the bottom line is, is there's essentially three types of muscle cells. There are what we call slow-twitch muscle cells or slow-twitch fibers. There's what we call fast-twitch fibers, and there's what we call intermediate fibers. And they're named by essentially the speed of contraction. Slow-twitch slow fibers, they contract very slow. The reason they contract slow is because they make ATP at a slow rate, which means they use aerobic systems to make ATP. The intermediate fibers are what we call trainable fibers. So if you do a period of exercise training, you can actually make those fibers resemble slow twitch fibers, 
or you could make those fibers resemble fast twitch fibers. And fast twitch fibers are fast, meaning they contract at a fast rate because they make ATP at a fast rate. And they do that because they use anaerobic energy systems. So the bottom line is how this works is on that lactate threshold response, when you're on the left side of that graph, that's when you're at a low exercise intensity, which means you can use primarily slow twitch fibers to make ATP and to, to contract skeletal muscle. But as you increase the intensity, that increases the recruitment of fast twitch fibers, and they only make energy via lact lactate formation through glycolysis. So that's one explanation for how this could occur. A fourth explanation is a reduction in the rate of lactate removal, and specifically lactate removal via the bicarbonate system and to a lesser extent uh, gluconeogenesis. Everybody, everybody down there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everybody good? So the real question is the first graph I showed with the lactate response or the lactate threshold response it was showing increases percentages of exercise intensity during aerobic exercise. So the real question is why on earth would you even be producing lactic acid to begin with if the exercise is aerobic in nature? And that's where these little shuttle mechanisms in the mitochondria come into play. So if we have glycolysis running, that produces NADH, and NADH is moved into the mitochondria via the hydrogen shuttle. And you, I think I've vaguely mentioned the hydrogen shuttle. I may not have called it by that name. This is the transporter that can either make that NADH in the cytosol into an NADH in the mitochondria, or it can make it into an FADH2 in the mitochondria. So it's this transporter that accounts for that uh, four to six ATP variation in the amount of ATP you get from a single molecule of glucose. The other thing that you have happening is you have pyruvate, and pyruvate is also being shuttled in the mitochondria. And when you reach a certain exercise intensity, you essentially get a failure of these two systems to move pyruvic acid and NADH into the mitochondria at a sufficient speed. And once you do that, the body really has no choice but to form pyruvic acid into lactic acid. And really the reason the body has to do that is, is um, because of one molecule. And that molecule is the NAD molecule. And NAD in the cytoplasm, it either exists in, as NAD or it exists as NADH, but not both. And if you ran glycolysis long enough, you would essentially convert all the NAD molecules you had in the cytoplasm into NADH. And once you've done that, glycolysis would just stop because you wouldn't have any more NAD molecules to process through the pathway. And the only way the body knows to deal with that if it can't move that NADH into the mitochondria is to make pyruvic acid, because, or excuse me, make lactic acid. So when you take pyruvic acid and you combine it with NADH, you get lactic acid and you reform NAD. So this is a protection mechanism the body uses to basically maintain the supply of NAD for glycolysis.
that makes sense? No? Is anybody awake? Mm -hmm. Hello? Hello? Okay. All right, that's, uh, that's it for now with the lactate threshold. Uh, talk a little bit about substrate utilization. And as I mentioned when I, I talked about this in the outline, the primary fuel sources during exercise are the macronutrients, carbohydrate, and fat. Protein's not really a good supply of ATP or ATP production during exercise. In extreme situations, protein can serve as a secondary fuel, but it's um, really not an ideal fuel because it has a lot of really bad side effects that your body doesn't really um, particularly need to go through. Uh, ketosis is one of them that's very bad. It can basically cause your kidneys to shut down and stop working, which might be a problem. Um, it can also cause damage to other structures as well. Um, the other obvious problem is um, the some dietary proponents that tell you you should just eat a high high fat high protein diet. Uh, luckily, that's almost dead. Um, is they say, oh, but if you eat a high protein diet when you exercise, your body's going to selectively use the protein that you're eating. Well, you know what? It doesn't work that way. The body selectively uses whatever protein it deposited last in your body. And that's almost completely random. So that could be skeletal muscle. It could be your heart muscle. It could be your blood vessels. Pretty much anything is made of proteins or amino acid sequences in your body. So uh, in terms of maintaining the structural anatomy and integrity of the cell, that's obviously a problem too if you start breaking those components down. Um, ironically, for those of you that are on a side note here, um, the Atkins diet, which is almost completely gone now, um, well, its, its founder actually died. He didn't use his own diet, though, so that's, that's I guess, a good thing. But um, he uh, actually created that diet based on a diet that was originally developed in 1870. And his diet was the, I think, fourth one since 1870 based on the exact same principle. And the, the principle was published in, uh, I think it was in a, the, a magazine or a newspaper in London. Basically, a guy in 1870 went to his doctor. He was overweight, and his doctor told him that he could eat only, he said he needed to lose weight, and the only thing he could eat was mutton. And mutton is a high-protein, high-fat dish. There's no carbohydrates in it. And that's all he could eat. He would not allow him to eat anything else. And you know what? He lost weight. So now, you know, people randomly dust off that diet and change it up just a little bit and call that a, a new fangled diet. But the reality is the reason that guy lost weight is because if you only got to eat one thing for every meal of every day for six or eight months' time, I guarantee you you'd lose weight too because I can almost guarantee you would not continue to eat uh, depending on what it is. The other thing we know about these two substrates is if we had to look at the way they use oxygen, carbohydrate is actually a more effective user of oxygen than fat. So let me say that one more time. Carbohydrate is a more effective user of oxygen than fat. And sometimes there's a number assigned to it saying uh, you get about three times... Per, per molecule of oxygen, you get about three, three or so times the um, 
three times ATP production versus 2.8 times if you're using oxygen with fat metabolism. All right, so what exactly does that mean? Okay, so if you think back to when we talked about all those pathways, you probably blocked some of them out of your mind forever. But uh, let me, I guess, scare you with two steps. Step one is pyruvic acid to acetyl-CoA. That is where CO2 is produced. Step two is the final step of the electron transport chain when oxygen accepts uh, the electrons coming off of the last cytochrome. Well, if you're talking about glucose metabolism, both of those steps occur. For every molecule of glucose you metabolize, you make two CO2 and you use two O2. So it's a perfect balance, two oxygen for two CO2. However, if you're making fat, or if you're making ATP with fatty acids, you only occasionally do pyruvic acid to acetyl-CoA when you need to prime the TCA cycle. So you don't have very much of that going on. And in uh, comparison, you have tons of oxygen being used at the fourth cytochrome because if you remember, if, even if we did something conservative like um, if we had the 18-carbon fatty acid, you get, uh, I don't know off the top of my head, you get uh, what, like... 40-something NADH molecules. So that would be 40, essentially 40, and it would be 20 oxygen molecules you'd have to use just right there. So to metabolize fat to make ATP, while you get a lot more ATP from a fat molecule, it takes a lot more oxygen to use it. So what does that matter? Well, at low-intensity exercise, it doesn't matter at all. It really doesn't make any difference at all. Uh, your body can use, preferentially, it can use fats if, you're training, if you've trained your body to do that. It will use them instead of carbohydrate. But as exercise intensity increases and the rate you need to supply ATP at increases, the body will always shift to carbohydrate metabolism. Uh, in some cases, under situations when oxygen is not abundant, i.e. exercising at altitude or the individual that has exercise-induced hypoxemia, the body might shift to carbohydrate metabolism a little bit sooner. The good news is if we want to know which substrate is being used primarily, we can do that fairly easily by taking some measurements of gas, uh, gas exchange at the mouth. And we can basically look at oxygen intake, oxygen output, and use that to determine how much oxygen is being utilized. And then we can look at CO2 input and CO2 output and determine how much CO2 is being produced. And by using that, we can, those two values, we can determine something that's called the respiratory exchange ratio. And the respiratory exchange ratio is a non-invasive technique to determine the metabolic contribution of carbohydrate and fat. Obviously, the ideal situation would be to have someone come in and ex... Well, with this technique, you have somebody come in and exercise, you put a mouthpiece in their mouth, they breathe through the mouthpiece, and then... Uh, a very expensive piece of equipment called a metabolic cart um, measures what's in the air and it spits out an RER number to go with it. So that tells you whole body oxygen utilization. The ideal thing though is you might want to know individual muscle cell utilization, uh, which in a human is almost impossible to do because basically what you'd need to do, well first of all you need to get somebody who would volunteer to actually let you do this to you to them while they're exercising, you'd basically need to run some sort of cannula into the skeletal muscle of interest 
and probably use some sort of MRI to make sure you get the cannula right in one of the muscle cells, and then you need to get them to exercise. So not really ideal in terms of measuring those responses, but there are ways that you can simulate exercise. For instance, uh, we have actually a device in our lab where we can grow skeletal muscle cells on a, a film, and then we can use suction to simulate exercise, and we can, we can basically, it's, it's actually pretty cool, we can make the muscle cells grow and we can make them get stronger, and we can look at uh, energy utilization that's coming in and out of the cells. So there are other ways if you want to look at individual cells, uh, just at the organism level, it's not really that practical to do. The RER itself is calculated uh, using this equation, and from uh, this point forward, and if I hadn't already said this before, anytime you see the V in front of uh, a gas, it always means volume. So this is the volume of carbon dioxide and the volume of O2, or VO2 and VCO2. And really, specifically what we're talking about is the volume of O2 that's being used versus the volume of CO2 that's being produced. And it's, again, back to those two steps, pyruvic acid and ac to acetyl-CoA, and the final step of the TCA cycle. Sometimes uh, when somebody is completing steady-state exercise, and we'll talk about steady-state exercise a little bit more in a moment, is sometimes you'll see the RER referred to as the RQ, or the respiratory quotient. If you see that terminology anywhere, it essentially is the same thing as saying RER. Right, so any questions about RER? The final thing with RER is that usually there's only a small range of values you can get, and that range is usually somewhere between 0.7 and 1.0. And essentially, if the value is 0.7, that means that 100% of the ATP you're producing is coming from fat metabolism, beta oxidation, TCA cycle, electron transport chain. If the value is 1.0, that means 100% of that fat is coming from carbohydrate metabolism, which would be glycolysis, TCA cycle, electron transport chain. And for instance, if that RER were 0.85, that would signal to you that roughly half of the ATP production is coming from carbohydrate, and the other half is coming from fatty acids. One of the ways that we use the RER is to detect a response that occurs during exercise known as the crossover effect. And this graph is meant to demonstrate that. On the y-axis, we have percent utilization of the specific macronutrient. And on the x-axis, we have exercise intensity. 40 to 60% would be considered low intensity, 60 to 80% moderate intensity, and 80 to 100% high intensity exercise. And when you look at the relationship from, between carbohydrate and fat metabolism, this is typically what you see. If you had someone exercising around 40% or less of their VO2 max, you would expect to see a high contribution of fat metabolism 
and a low contribution of carbohydrate metabolism. As that increases, the two lines cross over one another. And when you get all the way out to 100% of your VO2 max, 100% of your energy is coming from carbohydrate metabolism and no energy is coming from fat metabolism. And so this point specifically where they cross over is the crossover effect. Oops. The, uh, the one other thing to note here is uh, if we wanted to apply the RER to this graph, you could do that as well. Uh, essentially anything, the crossover point, at the crossover point, the RER would be 0.85. Anything to the left of that, it would be less than 0.85, and anything to the right of it, it would be greater than 0.85. So if you wanted to know the crossover effect and the intensity that occurs at it, it's actually fairly simple to measure. You just bring somebody to the lab, you have them do an exercise test, you measure their gas gas or oxygen consumption, carbohydrate production, and then you get to the RER value. So the, oops, um, the, uh, the next thing to talk just a little bit about is how the body transitions from the resting state to the exercise state. And if we looked at oxygen consumption or VO2, and we had somebody come in, they were at rest, we had them start exercising at a certain ten intensity, you would get an increase in oxygen consumption and then an eventual plateau. So to use some terminology that was in some of the orientation lectures a few weeks ago, this period of time for VO2 down here before you start exercising is homeostasis. That's the relatively constant internal environment at rest. Once this individual starts exercising, there is a curvilinear increase, in this case, in oxygen consumption. So curvilinear increase in oxygen consumption and then another eventual plateau in oxygen consumption. That plateau would be characterized as the steady state. So now that's the relatively constant internal environment at, during exercise. So there's a couple things to take note of here. Uh, one is this curvilinear increase, and we're going to talk about that in just a bit more detail in a moment. The second thing here is if we increase the exercise intensity, you would get the same response occurring again. So you're at your first steady state. You would um, have another curvilinear increase and then a second higher steady state being established. Now, if you were doing an exercise test, what you would want to do is you'd want to make your measurements when, for instance, VO2 is relatively stable. So normally what it takes is about two to three minutes to get to the steady state response. So it's not by accident that when you do exercise testing, you usually pick exercise stages, which are about two to three minutes in duration. And then you make your, minute, your measurements during the very end of the stage when the uh, response is likely to be the most stable or in the, the best steady state. There's a couple things here. Uh, since it is a curvilinear increase in oxygen consumption, there's a couple problems that exist for the body. Namely, that the second that the body starts exercising, so here, when we start this exercise intensity, there's an immediate demand for ATP at a certain level that's equal to this oxygen consumption. 
And that's immediate because keep in mind that when we talk about exercising at a certain intensity, we're talking about providing ATP at the same rate that it's being used. And this curvilinear increase in oxygen consumption suggests that energy is not being provided by aerobic energy systems initially. It's being provided by something else. And that, that kind of limits your options there. So if you're thinking anaerobic energy systems, you're thinking correctly. So effectively, if we added some more lines to this graph, you have two blocks of time or two amounts of ATP production which are not being met by aerobic energy systems. And this period of time or this lag between the actual aerobic ATP production and the amount of aerobic ATP production that's being used or needed is often referred to as the oxygen deficit. So there's a deficit between how much oxygen is needed and how much oxygen or how much oxygen is actually being used. It's the same thing as saying there is a deficit between how much ATP is required and how much is being supplied by aerobic energy systems. So it's the same thing if you follow the economy lately. I try not to look because it depresses me, but um, it's the same thing as when they say we have an $800 billion deficit. That means we're spending $800 billion more than we have to spend. So it's the same kind of thing. All right, so now we, that's the response that happens with steady state. We always have this oxygen deficit response. The one thing we know is that as the exercise intensity increases, the quantity associated with the oxygen deficit decreases. The other response is the transition from exercise back to rest. So we have this steady state response that I just showed, and that part was the oxygen deficit, the difference between what, how much ATP production is needed and how much is being supplied by aerobic energy systems. And the key is that if you want to exercise at that intensity, you have to supply ATP at that rate. So some of it's coming from aerobic systems and a lot of it's coming from anaerobic systems and then as your aerobic systems kick up and get going which uh, coincidentally takes about two minutes to happen once that happens then the anaerobic systems taper off if you were to predict what would happen after exercise it's a similar response the second that you stop exercising the body's ATP demand drops immediately back to resting levels So for any of, the, any of you who exercise regularly, you know maybe if you go for a really hard run, the second you stop exercising, your heart rate and your breathing just goes right back to normal, doesn't it? You just immediately, no? No? Oh, okay. No, that's not what happens. So even though the ATP demand is immediately zero, the body doesn't respond that way. It responds the same way that it started. It has a curvilinear reduction. So curvilinear decrease in oxygen consumption to the point that it's almost zero. Now, there's a couple things here. Uh, when this area of research was being done uh, 20, 30 years ago, uh, scientists actually thought that the, if you could actually calculate the amount, you can actually calculate the amount of energy that's associated with the O2 deficit, and they believed that it would be exactly equal to this period after exercise. And um, the reality is that's not the case. Uh, there's actually quite a bit more energy invested 
to start exercise than there is to stop exercise. The other thing that you, I'm sure that you've all heard this principle before, this response after exercise, you're probably sitting there saying, I've never heard that, what's he talking about? I don't even know what he's talking about. But the, th the way you've probably heard this before is you've probably read in some magazine or been told somebody, somebody's told you, hey, if you exercise regularly, one of the benefits of that is you burn a lot of calories after you finish exercising. That's, yeah, so you, you go exercise really hard and don't worry about those calories you burn during exercise. It's after exercise you're going to burn all those calories. So I can tell you from experience and labs I've worked in previously, if we put you on the treadmill and we ran you for an hour to the point where you were broke and you couldn't run any longer, you might burn 75 calories during your recovery from that. Might. Maybe. Maybe less than that. So you really don't get a significant amount of caloric expenditure after exercise. Good question. So, and, and then, isn't that called like you talked after the workout thing? Yes. So in, in, in terms of like rest transition to EPOC, um, wouldn't it be more beneficial for somebody who's out of shape? Like wouldn't that last longer for them? So they would burn with more like, compared to somebody who's in more shape or something like that now? No. It doesn't really, it's really almost completely random. And actually, the more trained you are, the shorter the period of time is. Um, it's a little bit long. You're still not going to get, you probably would not burn more than 75 calories. And if you compare that to how many you could burn during, if you, if you ran on the treadmill, even if you were really out of shape, and you basically ran for an hour and to the point where you could not run anymore, not even one step more, you could probably burn between four and 600 calories. And so when you compare that to the 75 that you might get afterwards, it's really not a significant um, contribution. So as uh, the, your esteemed colleague in the front just said, that period of time can be referred to as the epoch. Uh, the old school terminology for that is the oxygen debt. And the reason it was called the oxygen debt is because they believe that amount of energy associated with the debt would directly equal the deficit. And the reality is that's not the case. So um, they went to this, um, this abbreviation EPOC or EPOC, which uh, is a really creative abbreviation. It stands for excess post-exercise oxygen consumption. You're breathing more after exercise. Excess post-exercise oxygen consumption. These are really fun studies to do if you've ever if you ever get to be in a study like this because uh, most of the studies uh, there's another researcher when I was working my PhD that did these kinds of studies, and I was a subject in several of the studies. And uh, basically, like I said, you run until you feel like you cannot run any longer, and then you stop immediately and sit down. And you sit there until your, your breathing goes back down to rest. And if you haven't done that before, I wouldn't recommend doing it because it's not a pleasant experience by any means, especially when you go to stand back up. All right, so what are some of the reasons that the O2 debt occurs? It's pretty obvious why – it should be obvious, hopefully, why the O2 deficit occurs. It occurs because there's a difference between how much ATP is needed and how much is being provided. But that's not the case with uh, the recovery phase. So what's causing the recovery response? Well, it's believed that a roughly 20% of that oxygen you're consuming, roughly 20% of that O2 debt, is being used to reform ATP 
phosphocreatine, and replace tissue oxygen stores. So during exercise, in order to get to that steady state response, you're burning up some ATP, you're burning up some phosphocreatine, and just as a result of exercise, you're burning through some oxygen. So it's believed that 20% of that's used to replace those things. The, another 20% of that oxygen consumption or that ATP production is used to convert lactic acid to glucose in the liver. So the one disclaimer that I, I didn't make is um, gluconeogenesis cannot occur at the same time glycolysis is occurring. And gluconeogenesis only occurs in the liver. Glycolysis only occurs in skeletal muscle. So if you're exercising, there's a pretty good chance you're using glycolysis. That means gluconeogenesis isn't active. But if you're not exercising and glycolysis isn't activated, that means you can activate gluconeogenesis. And that's then going to take the lactate molecule and it's going to reform that into glucose. And then the, rate, the remaining 60% is used to increase account for the increase in heart rate and the increase in respiratory rate that you experience during recovery. And, you know, there's not really a, a lot of uh, complete understanding about why that is the case, why you keep breathing at that rate, but some of it is related to um, metabolic heat production. And the reality is that if you elevate your body temperature by 10 degrees Celsius, well, you wouldn't want to really do that during exercise. Let's say you elevate it by 5 degrees Celsius. Um, then that would actually, that would, that would not immediately go down to zero at the end of exercise. It would take some period of time to dissipate that heat. Uh, now, what interestingly, uh, there's a lot of research that's been done with cold water exercise. Uh, so these sound like these, I'm sure, if anybody's interested in this, please let me know. We're always looking for subjects for these kinds of studies. Um, if you're if basically you you uh, you put your speedo on and you got a, a treadmill in ice cold water, um, like about uh, 10 degrees 10 degrees Fahrenheit, and we stick you down in there and we have you run on the treadmill at about 80% of your VO2 max, and your body temperature doesn't change. It pretty much stays the same because the body loses heat very rapidly in water, and then um, when you stop exercising. Uh, your heart rate and your respiratory rate, they go back to resting values within about 10 seconds because there's really no change in body temperature and there's nothing that the systems have to account for. It's kind of an interesting response. Yeah? Oh, a volunteer. Um, no. Um, it depends on the, the study. I mean, I have personally run in that cold water for 45 minutes. And I can tell you that after about 20 minutes, it's delightful because you can't feel anything anymore. Um, but, um, but it's an interesting experience because the exercise feels hard, but not nearly as hard as it does when you have uh, increases in uh, body temperature. Uh, the other stuff that we've done is uh, essentially your, your resting body temperature is around uh, 38 degrees Celsius, 39 degrees Celsius uh, roughly. And with maximal exercise, it can get up to about 48 degrees Celsius, and then that's pretty much where you're going to have to stop or you're going to be dead pretty fast. So one, one limitation during performance in extremely hot environments is that you only have so far your body temperature can increase. 
So some uh, a lot of work that's been done in the area of cooling, and in particular, if you look, um, if you watch the NFL games at all, they always have uh, the the cool zone fans. Or the big thing now is they put these things actually in the shoulder pads now, which is actually a bladder that fills with cold air and cold water to drop the body temperature back down because that has implications for heat illness, but also also implications for performance. Uh, we did a study a number of years ago where we said, oh, okay, real simple. So if the body temperature can only increase 10 degrees Celsius and that's the limitation for how long someone can run in the heat, then uh, we'll just drop the body temperature before the person starts exercising. And then they should be able to exercise longer. So basically what we did was uh, we got a bunch of uh, elite level runners and uh, they, for money, stood in front of a fan and let us spray them with cold water for 20 minutes drop their core temperature to uh, about 28 degrees Celsius, and then we put them on the treadmill in, uh, in our heat chamber and had them run at a maximal intensity. And whether we drop their temperature before exercise, we pre-cooling them, or regular temperature, they ran for the same amount of time. So actually when you drop the temperature down, it increases even faster when you start exercising. So the bottom line is, is that it, there's a lot of things about exercise that cause the response that it causes, but one of the primary things is that change in body temperature. And when you don't have that change in body temperature, it changes everything about the way the body responds to exercise. And uh, because the amount of energy associated with the O2 debt doesn't really equal or isn't equivalent to the O2 deficit, the more traditional term for this period of time is the EPOC. And again, that's the excess post-exercise oxygen consumption. All right, so how does training status influence the VO2 response to exercise? Well, we've already talked about the rest-exercise transition in a very generic way. And in an untrained individual, that response may look something like this. And so the same sort of curvilinear response, and the way I've drawn it here, you can see it takes quite a bit of time for that individual to get to a steady state response. And there's some reasons why that's the case, and we'll, we'll talk about some more of those when we talk about skeletal muscle physiology. But one of the primary reasons is an untrained individual, their body doesn't know it's exercising until about four to five minutes after it starts exercising. Uh, so it actually takes a period of time for the, the skeletal muscle to tell the brain, I'm exercising, I need more oxygen. If you compare that to an individual who's aerobically trained, you get a pretty different response. Uh, and key, the key difference is that curvilinear increase occurs much quicker. And the reason that is is because the body detects the, that the skeletal muscle is contracting more quickly or it's more sensitive to smaller changes in ATP levels. Uh, some of the other things that we know about a well-trained individual aerobically, a well-trained individual will sweat sooner and more, more volume. Uh, so the, if, it's really interesting stuff if you like sweat, but um, I guess that's debatable whether or not you like sweat. But you can look at the uh, Gatorade Sports Science Institute on the web they have some great uh, research that they've done and, and are continuing to do with uh, looking at how different uh, dietary intakes and different types of activity influence sweat production. And they've always shown that the more trained you are, 
the more sweat you produce and the composition of the sweat is different and you start sweating earlier than somebody who's untrained. And that just means that the body's more efficient at cooling itself. And some of the early studies they did in this area are really, I mean, how they, how they actually determine that is pretty cool. They um, actually, if you want to collect sweat production, one of the earliest ways that was done is they literally had a giant funnel and they put the bike on the funnel and you exercise and all the sweat that comes off you gets collected into the bottom of the funnel. Um, a really easy way if you want to know how much sweat you're losing during exercise is weigh yourself before you exercise. When you finish, dry yourself off, get all the sweat off you can, and weigh yourself again. And the difference in your body weight is water weight because you're not going to lose five pounds during exercise, during one single exercise session. And if you lose five pounds and it's water, that's going to be a problem, especially if you're an athlete and especially if you're exercising in some sort of hot environment. All right, the, uh, one of the last things we're going to kind of look at today is the body's response to long-duration exercise and specifically long-duration uh, fixed-intensity type of exercise. And on this graph, we have percent utilization on the y-axis and we have uh, duration on the x-axis. And essentially, you would expect to see this kind of response. The longer you exercise, the more likely you are to run out of carbohydrate. And once you run out of carbohydrate, the body really only has one way to make ATP. That's with fat metabolism. So one of the things I think I mentioned just some numbers the last time is that a lean individual can store approximately 2,500 kilocalories of energy as carbohydrate. And that same lean individual can store about 75,000 kilocalories as fat. So what do, what do those numbers mean? Well, they mean if, the, if you're doing very high intensity exercise and you're burning about 500 kilocalories, 600 kilocalories per hour, you would probably be able to exercise for about five hours before you ran out of carbohydrate. And so probably I'm guessing for most everyone in that room, you're, that's not going to be an issue for you. Uh, now, if you're a crazy kind of endurance athlete, um, being able to exercise for more than five hours may be a, uh, a significant problem. So there's all, uh, I've actually got a couple of friends that are ultra marathon runners. Uh, so if you don't know what that is, that is a double marathon. That is 20, 52 miles. Um, the, uh, there's a couple of different ones of those. They're mostly run in other countries. There's uh, one called the uh, Two Oceans Marathon that's run on the tip of Africa. And it's called the Two Ocean Marathon because you run from one side of Africa to the other side of Africa during the, during the, the lower part of the tip by South Africa. So um, certainly if you're doing that type of event, you're going to need more than five hours of energy. And uh, other types of extreme events are very similar. The other thing that it doesn't account for is if you're doing a, some sort of exercise that requires multiple bouts over multiple days, there's a pretty good chance that you're not going to fully recover all the carbohydrate you lost uh, the previous day. Uh, there, was a, there was actually a guy last year that did a bunch of uh, data collection on some of the Tour de France riders and found out that even just the average riders, they used about 8,000 calories for every day that they exercised in that event. And so if you kind of think about what eight, I, I could probably, well, no, I won't. But if you think about how much you'd have to eat to eat 8,000 calories that are quality calories, I'm not talking about just going to McDonald's because you could probably get 8,000 calories without much trouble there. But 
we're talking about 8,000 quality calories in terms of replacing carbohydrate stores. You have to eat a lot of food to be able to do that. And uh, in reality, there's no way you could eat enough to replace what you lost. That's why when you look at those guys, most of them are as thin as a rail because they can't keep weight on because they're burning so many more calories than they expend. I think they showed something during the Olympics that um, suggested that uh, like Michael Phelps burns somewhere around 5,000 calories in one training session. Uh, so again, when you do those kinds of, when you push your body in that way on multiple days, uh, and you're an athlete, you have to be very dedicated to your nutrition. And in a lot of cases, somebody that competes on that type of level, they're going to have somebody that just tells them what to eat and or makes it for them, says this is what you're eating. The other thing we know about this response is out here at the latter parts of exercise, if your body has to turn to fat utilization, that effectively means you have to decrease the exercise intensity. Have to. What does that mean? In terms of the competition, it means you have to go at a slower speed. So if you're cycling, you got to slow down your pace. If you're running, you got to slow down your pace. So that's obviously not ideal. Uh, however, one thing that we do know is that if you carbohydrate load and if you consume carbohydrate during the actual event, you can somewhat offset the uh, drops in carbohydrate stores and you can increase the duration that you're able to use carbohydrate for. Uh, there's essentially two ways to go about doing carbohydrate loading. And uh, one way is called the classical method. And um, thank thankfully, no one actually does this anymore. Um, when I was an uh, undergrad, I actually was a subject in a couple studies that did this. And in the classical method, what you do is you come into the lab about a week before you're going to compete. And you ride for about three hours on the bike until you feel really, really tired, fasted. You don't eat before you do that. And then you do wind sprints on the bike until your RER is 0.7 or below. And once it's 0.7 or below, that basically tells you that you've exhausted all your body's carbohydrate stores. And then you have to prepare your body to take carbohydrate back. And the way that you do that is you do not eat any carbohydrate for four to five days. And if you think about that, there's really only a handful of things you can actually eat that don't have carbohydrate in them, which limits you to basically eating canned tuna and cheese Whiz. And both the studies that I was in, that's all we ate for every meal for four days was canned tuna and cheese Whiz. And I can tell you by that last day, it is really, really hard to continue to eat the tuna and the cheese Whiz. But... Um, what will happen is then once you've done that, then you can consume a high carbohydrate diet. And in doing so, you can boost your glycogen stores up to about 175% of the preloading levels. So effectively about a 75% increase. And the modified method, which is what most people use nowadays, is about four or five days before your event, you start loading up your diet with a high carbohydrate diet, 80, 90% of your calories from carbohydrate. And at the end of that type of loading regime, you get about a 60% increase or 160% increase in glycogen stores. So you get a little bit greater increase in glycogen stores with the classic method. But one of the real problems with the classic method is obviously you have an event coming up, so you have to keep training. And if you know anything about aerobic exercise training, you know that if you haven't eaten any carbohydrate for several days and you have no carbohydrate in your body, it's really, really hard to exercise, and it's really hard to uh, keep your morale up with the exercise. So 
Pretty much most researchers have deemed that the psychological damage from not being able to perform at an optimal level isn't worth it for the glycogen difference that you may receive. All right, so the, the long-duration response is dictated by hormone-sensitive lipase, and hormone-sensitive lipase is activated by two substances, the catecholamines and glucagon, and we'll talk about these some more uh, next week when we get to endocrinology. And once you activate hormone-sensitive lipase, that causes an increase in blood-free fatty acid concentration and a subsequent increase in muscle-free fatty acid concentration. So you break down the triglycerides and adipose tissue, you circulate those fatty acids to the muscle, they get taken up by the muscle and then metabolized. The second effect that you get during exercise, long duration or otherwise, is you get a substantial drop in blood insulin concentration and a decrease in blood lactate concentration. And the key reason that you get the drop in blood lactate is you're not using glycolysis anymore. So there's not really any uh, way that lactate could be formed. And blood insulin in general always decreases during exercise because that's not how the body transports glucose. And in this case, there's no glucose to transport anyway. All right, so what we know about glycogen depletion and its relationship to fatigue is when you deplete glycogen, you effectively decrease the rate of glycolysis. By decreasing the rate of glycolysis, you decrease the rate of pyruvic acid formation, and you decrease the formation of TCA cycle intermediates. So these are just progressive things here. So decreased glycolysis, that means less pyruvic acid. Less pyruvic acid means less acetyl-CoA, means less things being formed in the TCA cycle. So the intermediates of the TCA cycle are all those other name things that I said you didn't need to know, the malate, succinate, and all fumarate, and all those. The net effect of that is you get an overall decrease in the rate of ATP production from both carbohydrate and fat. And most of the time when you look at the literature, you'll see the term that keeps coming up is that fat always burns in a carbohydrate flame. So that effectively means that in order to metabolize fat, you have to have some amount of carbohydrate present. So if the body's completely depleted of glycogen, and it won't actually always, it, it's not possible to completely deplete the body of glycogen, but when you're pretty much most of the way depleted of glycogen, it makes it very hard on the body to make ATP with fatty acids. Well, if the body can't make energy with carbohydrate and it can't make energy with fatty acids, there's only other, one other way for it to make energy, and that's to turn to anaerobic means. And as we know from anaerobic means, you only get about um, two to three minutes maximal duration with those. All right, so we'll wrap up with a couple questions here. Uh, I think we've got about 10 minutes left. If you have another class to go to, you, don't, you, can, you can leave if you need to. You don't have to stick around.
All right, so which of the following components buffers blood acid concentration? A, the bicarbonate system, B, lactic acid, C, hydrophobic acid, or hydroponic acid, um, D, the lactate threshold reduction system. All right, so good, lactic acid, so at least 75% of you were uh, hopefully paying attention. All right, the main cause of lactate threshold is the failure of the hydrogen shuttle, true or false? Okay, um, so that was that nice little picture I had that said py glycolysis, pyruvic acid, NADH, pyruvic acid, and NADH in the mitochondria and the big X over the hydrogen shuttle. Okay, so you might want to look at that slide again. If the RER is 0.85, then A, the individual is using primarily fat to make ATP. B, the individual is using primarily carbohydrate to make ATP, or C, the individual is using 50% fat and 50% carbohydrate to make ATP. Okay, so um, I know I said that. Um, I, de I de definitely remember saying that. I think, yeah, I did say that. Um, so 0.7 is fat, 1.0 is carbohydrate, 0.85 is halfway between the two, so that's 50-50. All right, and uh, we'll go ahead and call it a day with that on that note.